This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings, Matt resurrects an undergrad paper he wrote about the creation, development, exportation, and devolution of the Soviet sports program with my Latvian comrade Chris Stapps, host of the Eastern Border Podcast. Chris and Matt discuss the rise of the Soviet sports system, from its unique brand of compelling mass participation through unhealthy competition, to its delightful use of acronyms and how freely the regime provided some nice cake to the unwilling. We jumped way down the rabbit hole on this one, folks, so consider this the Soviet sports system, part one, manufacturing Homo Sovieticus. Welcome, folks, to Semi-Intellectual Musings, a social science, arts, and humanities podcast that tries to shake up the ivory tower. Today is a solo matisode. Phil has been confined to the editing studio to work on Chronicity, our upcoming miniseries on chronic pain and illness, which will start to roll out on April 1st. Pinch hitting today for Phil is my Latvian comrade, Chris Stapps, Sons of the Eastern Border Podcast. Thanks for filling in today for me, Chris Stapps. Glory to communism, comrade. That's a joke. But keep you you keep your editor chained up in the in in the kind of the cold coldness of gulag, and then it, everything works great. Do not let editors out of the. Room. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, when 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 the need comes, I can put on a thick Russian accent, but I I don't think it'll be necessary. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I uh, I cracked the window, and it gets pretty cold up here in Canada, so I cracked the window a bit just to keep them awake. Uh, the cold keeps you awake as we. Oh wait, uh, you're, you're from Canada. Wait, I have forgotten. Yeah, we're just across of, the pond. Which part? Um, which part of Canada are you? If I might. Ottawa, ask? Ottawa, oh, wow. the capital city. Yeah, yeah, and then Phil, he lives across the river in uh, Quebec. So uh, it's a interprovincial uh, podcast we got going on here. I'll tell you if you, if you're in Canada, I don't know your geography that much, but I know that there is a Latvian community in Ottawa. Because uh, Canada was one of the most popular places to migrate, uh, like in, in after the World War Two, you know, uh, with, together with Australia. And I know that you can get our beer there in Ottawa. So if you can, you can go out in your oh, Latvian wow. culture center because there, I I'm pretty sure that there's there's a place in Ottawa where you can lat- get, get Latvian beer. So do that when you. That's can. awesome. If I do that, I will. Uh I'll record something, take some pictures, and I'll throw it up uh, online somehow. That'll be awesome. Um, and also, uh, Chris Apps, um, you mentioned that your uncle is also in the room, so we have the pleasure of talking to uh, Gundars, um, yeah. your uncle who was born and raised in the Soviet Union. So, um, yeah, he's he's a musician, by the way. He he really? played he played the bass for 20 years uh, in our opera and he ran a punk rock band in, in the Soviet era. He made his own electric guitar too. So, what? Okay. Um wow, okay, maybe future episode because <laughs> uh today we are going to be talking about the historicity of the Soviet sports systems. It's creation, imposition, exportation and eventual crumbling during perestroika in the 1990s. And we'll wrap up at the end of uh, the main chunk with some lighthearted banter about Vladimir Putin and the Russian doping oh, scandal. Oh no. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, what? Yeah. Big fan. So we're my gonna last, talk a my lot about my last three episodes have been only concerning the man. 
just a little bit just a little bit i know you're a big fan of talking about putin but um and we will also talk about stalin so it's going to be a one-two punch here oh yeah great it's like you know you you pick your own mass murderer it works either way hey so um by the shameful plug of the latvian cultural center chris i understand that you are a proud latvian uh, national were you also born in latvia yeah, I was here, born and raised in Riga. It's just that I try to keep contact with these communities because they actually sent me some books, you know, because uh, when people emigrated from Eastern Europe to West, they wrote books in English trying to explain the whole story, and they're not available here. So a lot of people have sent me a lot of books. <laughs> so that, oh, that's why that's why I know they exist, because they've sent me books. And, you know, I uh, from time to time I'll find a, an interesting find at a used bookstore where it'll be like, published by the um, Chinese like Communist Party from the say the 50s um, like a communist manifesto and so in the inside cover you see Chinese characters so like the propaganda came this way as well and then you can see with that example that the propaganda uh, or the truth telling in this case goes the other way back to Europe right yeah it was weird <laughs> yeah no it's amazing how um, knowledge is able to permeate regardless of how much has tried to be suppressed right knowledge See, the, the, uh, this is this is. Uh, I'm sorry, my philosophical background is coming out. Knowledge Please should be knowledge should be spread, and uh, every everything everything should be analyzed and criticized. Because, like Socrates said, life that is not examined is not worth living. You know, and and the same goes with history. You should try to like uh, try to find meaning in stuff. Like, Absolutely. Even if you're suffering and stuff. So. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. And I'm sorry if I'm a bit, a bit shy here. I I, ha- I don't have any script in, in front of me. Oh no, no. Stuff, this but. is the unscripted portion of the show. Um, <laughs> in the uh, in the main chunk, I'm going to expect you to bring the fire and the the heat there, buddy. Uh, no, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> You're like okay. Um, no, it's uh, it's good, man. Um, so tell me. Fire a little and bit. heat sounds much better than cold <laughs> and potato. <laughs> cold and potato i like that uh so tell me about the podcast eastern borders um i'm a big fan of it i know a bunch about it but tell our listeners what your show's about and um why did you decide to start one a podcast okay that is. so uh my show is authentic soviet history plus modern russian eastern european politics because well there was literally uh, i started listening to podcasts with our lord and master dan carlin yeah, totally. And then yeah. I, I got a job. I finished my university. I got my master's. And then I moved on uh, to work in a new, small newspaper. And I was responsible for the politics section there. You know, for oh, the cool. foreign, policy, for, foreign policy stuff. And I thought, hey, I should probably listen to some podcasts. If I listen to history podcasts, I might as well listen to politics podcasts. And the one that I was listening to was Slate's Political Gabfest. Okay, yeah, I listened to that, actually. And they had uh, this so-called Russian expert on, and her credentials, I don't remember her name now, but they remember that she was an expert because she had lived six months in St. Petersburg and six months in Moscow, staying only in the fancy hospitals and everything. It's like... And she yeah. started just just talking about about Russia and about Soviet Union and the collapse, and understood that, hey, well... uh, I yelled at my phone while I was walking and listening to the show for a couple of times because she she got some things right, but a lot of things she misrepresented or or just literally posted kind of the official opinion and and didn't really express the thing. And then I just wanted to know, yeah, hey, you know, maybe I should just tell this... (laughs) Sounds sounds stupid and kind of meme-ish, but uh, I wanted to tell the story of my people, you know, the the real Soviet history, the the one where you know I, I had an interview on my one of my episodes with real people who were in Chernobyl, who were like the rescue party there, or people who actually fought in the Afghanistan war, or just people who lived in Soviet era and what their real experience was like, you know, the stuff that doesn't get into history books. Well, and then it kind of went deeper than that because now. 
Now, uh, as far as I get it, I'm actually kind of... I'm doing my journalist job with Modern Politics episodes because I'm explaining stuff which faster and usually deeper than that's, get, that's covered in the rest of Western media about this. And I'm, and I'm trying to... Trying to tell, trying to give the real people's history of the Soviet Union and how what's going on right now at this moment. That's that's what I try to do. I, I'm not not sure if I achieve it completely, but I but I do try my best at this. That's awesome, man. Um, and I can see with the most recent episodes on Putin. Um, and like by the way, we'll just touch on that at the end, just as a way of wrapping up. So I know you're like a little Putin overload right now. Um, poop and Putin. Um, so. I can see, though, your political journalism background coming through on episodes like that about the recent history, um, you know, the 10-year reign, uh, or longer, I suppose, of Vladimir Putin. Oh, right, now it's 18. They, they 18, hit 18. Time flies, eh? When you're not having fun. Um, and uh, But then also you can pair that with your historical perspective. Uh, that's really fascinating. And um, for me, I... I I'm familiar with Eastern European history and politics. I'm a fan of the history and learning more about it, you know. Uh, so this episode is actually based on an undergraduate paper that I wrote when I was at uh, the University of British Columbia. Now, I got to ask you, um, doing a podcast in Latvia, is there any sort of restrictions or um, censorship that goes on? Like, forgive me if that's an ignorant no, question. No, 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 it's, it's okay. Uh, but no, we, we are part of the European Union now. We- Look, we're civilized by this point. You might not mm. believe this, but it's true. Actually, the biggest issue here is that uh, even though I'm in, in Latvia, we have strong trade unions, and there's one that's journalists' trade union, okay. Latvia Journalist Opfini, but I'm a member of that, and I was like, uh, kind of historical even, I was the first purely new media journalist that got accepted there. Congratulations. But otherwise, uh, Latvia, as many other countries, have no laws concerning new media. Uh, nobody even my, the governmental people probably don't even know what podcast is, <laughs> or what awesome. YouTube does, or whatever. So um, um, I'm treading brand new r- brand new ground here. But the, the bad part is that you know there are a lot of podcasts in Latvia, and, and I've um, I've been helping out a bunch of new people start start their own shows here in Latvia. They mostly do it in Latvia, and as far as I know of, I'm, I'm probably the only one who runs around doing it in English, but. But yeah, it's pretty easy. It's pretty great, uh, except, you know, all the death threats that I get from Russia and hate mails, and, and uh, my ribs are broken once, but hey, that's part well, of the job, I suppose. Okay, thank you for asking the leading question that I was about to ask, because I was just about to ask you about what about informal forms of uh, censorship or uh, restriction in no, terms no, see, of getting your ribs see, broken? Uh, this if you don't mind at- talking about that. No, it's, it's fine, it's fine, because yeah, okay. uh, it needs to get out, because uh, I'm being... I'm, as I live in Latvia, not in Russia, that's that's way better than it goes on in Russia because they have these troll farms. And for those people who think that hey, that must be silly, well, once you get like 300 one-star reviews in iTunes in a single day from single town by IP addresses in Russia, it stops being funny. Wow. Once once they uh, if they just write you hate mails and leave bad comments, that's one thing. Once they start calling you in the middle of the night, giving personal information about your family members and your wife, it stops being funny. God damn. Because at one point, you know that that's that's the point where I kind of took it to my pride. Because you know, once um, I I like I used to work in the, as a journalist in the small newspaper, and that was in like the far east of Latvia, next to Russian border, and they revoked my visa. And I'm not no longer welcome there. I'm kind of blacklisted too. So yeah, I must be doing something right with all the situation. But then again, uh, it's Putin's Russia, and and it's 
they they do have ridiculous ridiculous laws about you know censorship and free speech. They they have these troll farms who push up dislikes, give bad reviews and stuff. But I'm carrying on. I'm carrying on because you know what? Um, if you're not, <laughs> this is what I this is what I jokingly t- say to you because. Um, on on like podcasting groups on Facebook, people often like ask advice. What did they do about bad reviews? And I tell them, well, until you have pissed off a whole country. <laughs> no kidding. It's like, like who cares what that dude person in Wisconsin care says? Like, you're getting like Russian mobsters coming to break your ribs. Yeah, and that's happening. Cause Lord. One, one, I, I was walking because um, you know, we're still pretty young, and I'm a geek. We play computer games and stuff, and. uh Besides doing other stuff, we like we like to like hang out and, and stuff. And one evening after a LAN party, I was with, in my brother's place and was coming home from that. And just on the street, people just came over and asked me, "Hey, are you Chris Tubbs? And I said, "Yes." And "Hey, you're making that podcast?" And I said, "Well, yes, too." And and one thing led to another, and uh, yeah, ended up at a hospital for a bit. Oh, but it was cool because my friends smells. came out and they ran away. But it was crazy. But otherwise, it's pretty cool. Uh, we had we had people like visit us, our listeners, and that was also really great. Because for the most part, we're really kind of you know, it's it's not a place of darkness and utter poverty. We're actually we have actually very improved since we joined the EU. We're we're a pretty civilized nation now. That is why the events were were so shocking to me when when they actually happened. But right. that happened like. Uh, before the election, <clears throat> before the event previously on the election in Russia, <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be fine now. I think I'm I think I'm okay. Uh, everything. The only thing that I want to do and what I'm really happy about is that I can still carry on with my job and that I'm on the right path. Apparently, because you know, right. I, I I heard some feelings of some nasty people. Um. So I just want to. I'm just curious. So do you? Are you a working journalist right now as well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I write, because I write some articles now and then. Okay, because you're a part of the like the journalism union or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. I, I mainly for my podcast, but now and then, you know, uh, due to the fact that I actually have a contact with a lot of Westerners, you know, I talk to you, I talk to you Western people <laughs> from Jump- your strange countries. <laughs> Jumping over the wall, eh? <laughs> Pulling no, back the Iron Curtain. <laughs> no, sometimes sometimes I'm just being asked, hey, what what do people in the West know about this or that thing, and, and what's the general opinion and stuff like that. So I, I wrote wrote thi- write things about, you know, for example, what West thinks about like uh, Russia or last year stuff like that I, I sometimes write for re- local newspapers about you know I, I have t- I, I'm the guy who who's sometimes represents Western opinion about things that's I, interesting I, I, I've, I've yeah I've, I've learned uh, I have learned that you Westerners are actually indeed human <laughs> well thank you very much uh, we, uh, we're still on the fence about you folks but we're getting there no it's joking <laughs> no it's fine um, so speaking of negativity uh, would you like Trust to me, play a- about Latvian yeah? jokes you can't beat Latvians about Latvian jokes it's like uh, we, we have this one knock knock joke and it's like knock knock who's there let me in it's cold and dark also very <laughs> that's hilarious um, so Speaking of hateful things, would you like to play a game with us today? Sure, why not? Okay, so this game is called What Do You Hate More? And it's a game that I developed, and me and Phil play it, and we play it with our guests. It's where we debate the demerits of two bad things. So I'm going to take two negative things and ask you, basically, what do you hate more? Okay, you ready? Fine, sure. All right, so Chris Stapps, what do you hate more? American imperialism or Russian Soviet imperialism? <sighs> this is not an easy answer. 
<laughs> as soon as you said you were going to come on the show, I wanted to ask you this question, buddy. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I'll actually I'll actually say Soviet imperialism because you know uh, it's pure and simple. Um, how many people have? How many Latvians have Americans killed? Versus how many people the Soviets have killed? Mm, fair. Hmm. That's a fair piece of arithmetic there, but <laughs> as much as as much as we do not like uh, American cultural influence uh, and a bunch of other things that they've done, mostly culturally, uh, they're they they are they they still haven't like uh, sent us to gulags in mass, you know. Hmm. They, they they still have their odds and chances of doing so, but I think it's kind of not not very likely. Okay, so what about on a more general level? Like, not from the Latvian perspective, but just in general, what's worse, American imperialism or Russian slash Soviet imperialism? Like I said, I can't, I can't be objective here, you see. Of course. No, no, American, this is not an objective game. <laughs> American imperialism, uh, if you think about it, see, uh, look, uh, I'm not a huge fan of everything the United States does, but hey... Me living in Latvia, we can't pick our allies really well. So hey, we're we're gonna wave the United States flag and yell, "Hey, it's gonna be great! You're, you guys are the best. Go team America! Play sports ball, whatever you call it, on your Fourth <laughs> of July." <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and because that that kind of ensures our safety. I see. The thing is, United States. United States is like uh, your big, kind-hearted schoolyard bully. Right. It's like, you know, it's the big, strong guy who'd be, like, really mean to you, but he, for some reason, has taken a liking to you. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And you can kind of outsmart him as well a little bit. Like, you can do a little head fake and just go the other way, you know? That's what Canada does. Yeah, but we, see, We keep head faking the Americans. We, we <laughs> over here, at least, see, as much as we might not like some specifics of United States culture and their, and their politics, you know, at least we know that they're not mean-spirited by default. Right. Right. They're trying to be the good guys. They're sometimes failing at it. Hey. <laughs> eh. I think uh, the Russian thing uh, with the uh, aggression is the Mongol influence, but that's where I kind of come down. Yeah, I, I, I know. Cause <laughs> the, seriously, the, the, a lot of Russian historians would agree because uh, it's kind of uh, one of the latest books that I read was all about how Russian, how Russian governmental system has not evolved since the Mongol Tartar yoke and mm-hmm. how they've picked up basically the traditions of the uh, of the Mongol conquerors and stuff like that. And it even wasn't like, and you might you might think that this might be like racist or, or degradatory, but no, no, no. It was actually a real study about how the Russian specifics of rule have emerged when taken into account what vast territory they must govern after all. Right, and if you that's, take it on a, like a cultural or a uh, political sort of perspective, you can see how influence um, um, that could have on a society going forward, right? Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, kind of interesting there because yeah, you know yeah. uh, they're 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 a different culture in a way. They're um, at one point like uh, at least now there was like and I follow stupid statistics. That's my job. Uh, but apparently, according to the latest data, only thirteen percent of Russians consider them to be European. Oh wow! Really? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting, it, and that's just like public opinion. Yeah, because huh. those public opinion polls and stuff, like, I follow statistics. I like to know statistics both about my country and, like, Lithuania, Estonia, Russia, all of this stuff. Um, uh, I, I, lear- I learned to love statistics. They're great. <laughs> well, they tell a story, right? Yeah. And you know who else tells a story, bud? You? Me? No. 
Ocean Cold Path. <laughs> the, the interesting and awesome segue of, uh, uh, of Matt Sanderson right there. So Ocean Path is uh, a Latvian uh, melodic, um, kind of symphonic, gothic, folk metal rock band that Kristaps uh, yeah, it's exactly because But the, really, the best explanation is they're goth, pagan, melodic metal band. Yeah. It actually works well together. Yeah, it, it totally does. And um, I've never heard anything like it before. I've also never heard Latvian music before. So uh, two birds, one stone there. So Kristaps, uh, you also happen to be good friends with... Uh, which member of the band? Because there's the quite a few. The drummer guy. The drummer, uh, Alina? Alina? No, no, no. Uh, oh, wait. He's not the drummer anymore? They mm. changed? Maybe. I don't know. Why? Uh-oh. I haven't spoken with them for a few months. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> okay, I used, to be be- I used to be friends with their old drummer then. Or maybe he's like off for a while now. I don't know. Okay, well, just so long as that... See, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a married person who's moved recently and been busy. But it's fine. It's fine with them. I <laughs> Literally, just before we recorded this episode, I wrote a message informing them that their music will be used. And they said it's okay, so it's fine. Okay, that's good. So, you can find Ocean Path on Facebook at Ocean Path. Um, you can also find their music on SoundCloud. Uh, that's how I found them. And also, what looks like some sort of Latvian Facebook page. I don't know what it was, but... It, it was called Draugiem. It's uh, a local fripe. It means for friends, essentially. Okay. It's, it's, uh, it was born in 2001. It's like um, it's mostly dead by now, because everyone just switched to Facebook. But that thing appeared before Facebook here. And everyone was playing, basically, you know, those farm games or whatever there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it looks like it's from 2002. So um, you can also go check out that to get a little time portal back in uh, time there, see what Latvian Facebook looked like. Um, And you can follow us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D and on Facebook at the SimPod, all one word. Wait a second. How do I follow you again? (laughs) You can follow us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D and on Facebook at the sim pod all one word you can email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com subscribe to the podcast at the sim.podbeam.com and uh, we're on itunes stitcher everywhere you find podcasts and to bring us out you are listening to ocean path with the title track from their album daughter of the northern wind and silver icebergs swallow the endless path. Daughter of a northern wind, walk through eternal night. No man or god or demon can make us sight get
So that was Daughter of the Northern Wind from Ocean Path. You can find them on SoundCloud. They're amazing. And thank you, Chris West, for um, the Eastern Borders podcast for introducing me to them. They're an awesome Latvian melodic folk. Well, you heard them. They're amazing. Um, so today we are talking about the history of Soviet sports. And the reason we are talking about this is because sports provides a really uh, helpful lens in which to study the wider um historical forces in the Soviet Union. So how the Soviet Union was founded, what its ideologies were, how nationalism comes into play, and so on. This was also an undergrad paper that I wrote for, at UBC. It's one that I was actually really proud of. It was all about the formation, enhancement, exportation, and the eventual waning of the Soviet Union's highly organized and symbolic math athletics, mass athletics program. I want to follow a historical trajectory today with you, Chris. Um, but I want to use uh, sport as a focal point in which to study wider socio-cultural and political forces. Mm-hmm. So when you start digging into it, the ideological symbolism of the Soviet Union uh, seen through their sports, it just jumps right at you, right? Um, so in the Soviet example, we see nationalistic ideologies combined with a sort of perverted Marxism as well as some totalitarianism in the form of Stalin's cult of personality. So that's something I actually want you to talk about in a little bit, a lot about, Chris, if that's okay. Yeah, fine. Uh, And then we'll also see from 1952 onwards uh, the playing out of Cold War tensions on the field of sports. Heck, Canada even got roped into things in 1972 when we played a friendly little exhibition hockey series against them, and we just barely eked out a victory that is still spoken about today with lore, admiration, and frankly is seen as one of our primary contributions to the Cold War, as ridiculous as that might sound. So when it comes to the Latvian experience, Chris, and the Canadian experience, I think we actually have a lot in common when it comes to the Cold War. Um, from also, that I, do have to, I do have to say that... Uh, one thing that we also have in common in, La- in Canada with Canada over here, Latvia, is that we are both like hockey is the number one sport here. It's number one, yeah. So yeah, you, it's the best best sports. So Archer Zerbe played for uh, the Canucks. Eh? So like I'm a big fan of Archer Zerbe. I always had been. So is he a big deal in Latvia? I just had to ask you that right off the front. Oh yeah, he is. He's he's a uh, he's like our super super mega famous goalie, like the best goalie of all times. Okay, cool. Yeah, I call and he. He was also uh, the goalkeeper for us uh, here in Latvia when we in 2000 in the cha- in like uh, the World Championships in Saint Petersburg when we beat Russia three two. Yeah, and we and in Canada were like- so cheering for Latvia. It was like anyone who beats the Russians or the Americans in hockey, especially, but any oh, yeah. sport really, um, we get really excited. So we can be big fans of Sweden. We could be big fans of Latvia. Heck, if uh, Belarus makes a run, we'll cheer for them as well. So um, I was wondering, before we get into any more sporting rabbit holes, uh, but we are going to do that as well, can you kick things off, uh, Chris, by describing the economic and political conditions of Tsarist Russia in the sort of latter half of the 1800s, kind of leading into the Bolshevik Revolution? Okay, uh, obviously this is a huge, huge, huge question here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, in short, we're talking about a very stratified society, of which 97% are completely um, completely people without any rights, uh, serfs. 97% of people are uh, illiterate. They have no rights. They are essentially property together with the land. They're uh, just... They're slightly better off than uh, than the slaves uh, were in the United States, but only very, very slightly. 
but the, and then there's the nobility, which are the remaining 3%, of which most live in Moscow or St. Petersburg. Uh, those guys all speak French, for starters. Because uh, oh, French was the kind of the kind of the language of the court back back then, and that's that's how it was always been. It's basically an ancien regime of France, except in a wider scope with much more stricter rules due to the Francophiliac uh, sentiment of Russian nobility. Uh, they ran this ancien regime up until the end of World War One, up until the revolution, basically. And now the th- thing is, the thing is, yeah. At one point, there were reforms, uh, kind of, you know, uh, at one because uh, Russia was like really backwards, and they 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 were struggling economically, they were struggling technolo- technologically, and they had major population issues. Obviously, if you know, most of your country is illiterate. And then there were some sort of promising reforms by the Tsar, uh, and one thing that happened was like up until like in 1913, uh, Russia had actually biggest economical growth rate uh, in, in Europe, but that's because their economy used to be so bad that yeah. it just started improving. <laughs> of course, but right? In, that's but, in general, say, yeah. but in general, it was it was an ancien regime, like an um, like pre-revolution French empire at its worst, with uh, completely oppressed masses, practically no middle class, uh, like really terrible impoverished situation there for the most people. So the Bolshevik Revolution, when it came, it came as a means to getting rid of the Tsar. But the, the, they had a lot of like issues because you might think that proletariat meant workers and farmers. But at the beginning, it wasn't really so because the like industrial workers in the towns were not united with their... F- more often than not, way better off uh, farmer farmer people there. See, because farmers used to be way better off than the workers, so they were much less friendly to the Soviets than the workers in the cities were. So uh, the the whole collectivization then happened, and it was all like an attempt to kind of rein in the farmers who were kind of semi-independent, because, you know, they could grow their own food, and they were like, you know, they could subsist on their own. They didn't need any subsidies from the government. But but yeah, uh, that, that that was what what happened there, because pre-revolution literally and this is one of the one of the true things that Lenin wrote was that when he said that the the people have nothing to lose but their chains and that's kind of true because it was it was a really 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 bad even before the revolution and um, that's one of the biggest mistakes that uh, a lot of people in the west make when they when they now you know they compare uh, the czar to the bolsheviks and they often often think that hey the czar was somehow better well the czar that the revolution was turned against to was the same one who shot his own people with cannons, you know. So, j- just saying, it was pretty brutal before that. <laughs> yeah, and that's um, but, that, but that's a very that's a very very tiny compressed. Of course, thing. and if you want to hear more, and if you want to hear more details, uh, go listen to the Supporters podcast. Um, uh, I know those details. I just wanted to get a sense of the landscape. So it's a largely agrarian society, but with yeah, harsh. Um, imposition by the state or the nobility in this case, the 3%, um, are keeping the peasants 
tied to the land and literally starving and impoverished um, right on the brink. Now, when it comes to Russia pre-Bolshevik sporting experience, um, as you would expect, the only people who were able to participate in sports in Russia at that time were members of that 3% nobility class. So Russia did, um, the Russian Empire competed as a nation at the 1900 Games for the first time. Uh, the Olympic Games, and returned again in 1908 and 1912, believe it or not. Um, and then after the Russian Revolution in 1917, and uh, subsequently uh, the establishment of the Soviet Union in 1922. Um, after that, 1922, it'd be 30 years until Russian athletes again competed at the Olympics under the Soviet Union in the 1952 Olympics. But why is this interesting? It tells you that sports has always been seen as, um, at least in Russia, but in general in the 1800s, as a pursuit of the upper class. The rest of the working class, they were working. They didn't have time to go buggering around and go rowing uh, on the weekends. You know, they were dog tired. They're working six days a week. Um, so you see here in Russia that the nobility are the ones who are participating. Now, Chris, you mentioned the Bolshevik Revolution, World War One. Um, so leading into like 1925, what was the kind of aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917? Uh, brutal war and terror by the Bolsheviks and by the whites and by everyone, because at that point Russia turned into civil war. And recently, I, I just basically, if you look at the map of uh, all the tiny temporary countries that formed during the civil war that followed the revolution, you can see that it's about 19 countries. (laughs) 19 separate political entities fighting each other, and that's not counting the Latvians, Estonians, Lithuanians, the Finns, the Poles, the Ukrainians, and everyone else who were trying to get their own country at the same time. At first, it was brutal warfare together with war communism. Nobody really thought about sports at the time. Uh, and after that project failed, with the whole war communism thing, which just made the poverty situation even worse, then they introduced the NEP, the new economical policy. Stalin didn't like that economical policy, so, you know, he ended that in the lives of uh, many people. Hmm. Uh, in Latvia, you know, in Latvia, you know, uh, as I speak about death and terrible destruction in my show a lot of times, I would like to exchange the word death for had a nice cake. Uh, as, as uh, for this show, so Stalin made a lot of people have a nice cake. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and you know, in the twenties, um, so before or sort of through the rise of Stalin, um, after Stalin rose to power, then you see the forced collectivizations and the purges that come into into play, and that was an attempt and a forceful attempt and a successful one at consolidating political power. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that process in the 20s of consolidating political power in the yeah, Soviet I wanna, Union. I, I kind of want to mention here that with, uh, with like late 20s, this is where the Soviets uh, get their interest back in doing some sort of sports. Right. Because they, they are running on this ideology where... Uh, everything must be nice and shiny and cool because, you know, we've beaten back the Tsar, we are now advancing, and we're so great. And there's this ideology of the new Soviet man. Right. The Soviet man is better, he's morally pure, and he's devout communist, and he's better in every way than his capitalistic superiors. The Soviet man can do anything. That's like the ideological basis. This is where the beginnings of this are. Right. And, um... And, and, uh, but the consolidation of power, that kind of, uh, 
Stalin basically got appointed to be the human resources guy in the Communist Party, and then that turned out, because, you know, the position of general secretary, literally at the beginning, meant that he was the general secretary. He was the guy who wrote the protocols and who was responsible for human resources. Uh, Stalin basically made that position to be the number one position in the state, not vice versa. It wasn't the position number one at the beginning, Stalin made it so. That's that's the interesting part here. Because uh, what Stalin did was, essentially after Lenin died, he uh, consolidated power in basically by giving everyone who was uh, his rival to the top dog position a nice cake. Mm. Some of some of their families also got a nice cake. Some of his own own childhood friends also got a nice cake. Everyone was eating nice cake because at that point Stalin decided, hey, those all are Bolsheviks just as I am. Bolsheviks are really, really terrible people when it comes to, you know, trusting each other. And we're all criminals come anyways. How about I kill all the rest of the criminals come? I'm doing a good job. Hey. No, that's, that, that's literally Stalin's ideology because later on... He would write on about how everyone, literally everyone who had been his friends, his uh, guys around him, every other Bolshevik leader, how they all were actually traitors and criminals. That was kind of the point here. He wanted to make sure, kind of opposed to Trotskyism, he wanted to ensure that uh, the government would stay centralized. They needed this industrial leap, and they made enormous sacrifices, like really, really evil sacrifices at some points to to do this, but Stalin's plan was to essentially make Soviet Union a superpower, and as much as I don't like the man personally, I do have to admit that Stalin kind of succeeded at what he was aiming to do. Right, it's just everyone had to eat some cake uh, along the way. Um, now, uh, when it comes to the sporting system, uh, you're right, it started in the 20s, actually July 12, 1925, the U.S. Sorry, took the first step towards athletic dominance with the concept, introducing the concept of physical culture or physcultura. Uh, it was defined at the uh, Central Committee of the All-Union Communist Party. Physcultura is basically physical education and health education as an aspect of cultural, economic, and military training in youth and as a way of educating the masses in essentially Marxist slash Soviet ideological principles. I have yeah, um, the, I have a uh, citation uh, from okay. Washburn, 1956. He quotes, um, endurance, teamwork, resourcefulness, and other valuable qualities, and in addition, as a means of rallying the broad masses of workers and peasants around the various party, Soviet, and trade union organizations through which the masses of workers and peasants are to be drawn into social and political activity. Now, there are three pillars to this initial sporting program that was introduced in the mid to late 20s. The three pillars were general health, education, and mass involvement, also known as mass offs, uh, were the three initial pillars. And then later in the 50s, we'll talk about how it became professionalized. But essentially, as you say, Chris, uh, these policies here on the surface it is a really cheap and efficient way to raise the general overall health of the entire populace. However, when it's someone like Stalin and his friends who are being purged and freaking out over, you know, violating some sort of weird rule that Stalin put in place, um, participation in these programs was absolutely compulsory. So I was wondering if you can just sort of talk about compulsory sort of physical education a little it's bit. It's called compulsory voluntarism. Yeah, <laughs> voluntary compulsorism. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, or something like that. Thing, one, one thing that really happened was, uh, for example, uh, our 
PED classes in school were called Fiskult or whatever about like mid 2000s. That 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 term was that yeah. was like whatever there. Interesting. Uh, as all as everything was state owned, all the companies, all the workplaces, everything was state owned, run by the state. So you know, if you wanted the job, you you participate in this. And for example, they had this rule where uh, like every couple of hours, uh, there was like this. You know, in your workplace, you work in a factory, then. Uh, you have this every two hours there's a 10 minute break but everyone just has to get get up and there's a guy and they're they're like doing some exercises just you know stretching and doing some push-ups or stuff like that that was mandatory in every workplace interesting that was that was one thing uh secondly it was also kind of preparations for war that's right. That's 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 the really sad part cuz at the same time one of the most popular sports uh in Especially that that'll come a bit later. That'll be in the thirties. But what Stalin really popularized was parachuting, like you know, uh, doing. I, I I don't exactly know that. Oh, know like where, skydiving. Where yeah, skydiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that thing. Uh, that was popularized among high schoolers because you know, uh, Soviet Union had conscription, and they still do in Russia. And the idea was that Stalin used these sporting activities to kind of prepare. Uh, prepare everyone for the defense of the Soviet uh, Soviet fatherland, and you know, if we liberate a few countries here and there, nobody will notice, and it's going to be fine. Of course, and the uh, <laughs> the rifle shooting, the um, paramilitary training that was yes, part of exactly. It, it was um, it was mandatory in all schools. It was mandatory, uh, right? It was almost like um, here in the West, in like North America, we have a thing called the cadets, and it's it's literally army training. But yeah, but um, imagine imagine Soviet, that just everywhere. Yeah, exactly. And the Soviet Union is just part of gym class, essentially. Right, so it's not it's not just that you see. If you studied in university, there was these physical education norms called GDA. Uh, at least that's how it was in Latvia. Gata was darba maestrzi by ready for work and defense. Right. So yes. uh, you, you, you're studying for something, and you had to pass these physical tests and get a stamp there. And in every university class ever, and in high schools as well, you know, it's like you know, you have your everyday lessons, and they they had special classes of civil defense in schools where people were taught, you know, how to assemble and disassemble a Kalashnikov, how to put on gas masks, how to how to spot enemy tanks by silhouettes, you know, right. stuff like that. Together with all these all these physical things, all these all this physical side of this, it was all put there. So that, because of the conscription, so that more and more people would have this military training, at least at the beginning. Right. Later on, it became more of a prestige thing, but we're speaking about Stalinist era up until, up until like, 1953, when he, when he died. Uh, all this was, like, useful for the military. And later on, you see the same thing in the pioneer, uh, in the, the pioneer uh, kind of camps and, and stuff like that. It's like, it's like scouting movement, but extremely militarized. Right. But yeah, in a way, that was also kind of you know a lot of people, a lot of people in the older generation kind of you know, miss that idea, you know. Yeah, because it gives you a sense of kind of group belonging. Now, so as you mentioned, Chris, that this system was implemented right at the start into schools, but also workplaces. So as soon as the system was implemented. It was tweaked a little and then organized around uh, not only schools but industry. So the train works, the Red Army, auto plants, um, Dynamo, for example, or is uh, the former secret police team. So every industry you had 
um, sort of. They had their own sports teams. They had their own sports teams, and they had, like, elite sports teams, and then they probably had, like, local union sort of, like, beer league, we call them beer league hockey teams in Canada. So probably, like, just more of a friendly kind of thing. And not only does it give you a sense of belonging, but it's probably a little bit of a nice break from probably what's a pretty scary, dreary time to, to be alive. So... But oh yeah, but th- but then again, you also have to remember that if you were like if you did this in your own spare time as a hobby, then it was one thing. But if you became good at this, then um, well, for one, you you literally lived better than other people because you know uh, professional athletes got it better than everyone else. But at the same time, if you failed at things, if if you like basically, if you if you went to the Olympics and you were like a representative Soviet team, if you defected, then not only you could get in trouble, but your whole family back at home. Right, and that's uh, um, uh, there were repressions, and, and that's so forth. like later in the seventies, um, and especially in the eighties, defections was a very dangerous thing, and the people back home. But then in the nineties, we see uh, players started getting sold off in the in the early and mid 90s so we'll we'll get to that but here in the 20s um, we see that uh, the early implementation of sports was not only based around mass participation but it was also geared towards results so it was almost like production numbers so you had to score certain grades on these annual or biannual or even weekly tests Um, it's also symbolic of the formation of the nation state and state ideology it's like we need to come together and work together and all be productive um, yeah, that, 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 that's called thing, kind of, you know, it ties into this uh, new Soviet man idea. Right. That was born there, this, that's this right, like, yeah. social realism, like, uh, you know, uh, the Soviets tried to shred the, the past away from themselves. They tried to, like, build this new future, this, this awesome new man that lives in this awesome new state and everything. Well, at least on paper, obviously. The guys who were running up on, on parties, like, nobody really believed that. Like, there were people who bought into this, but for the most part, that was a neat way of, of you know, making making sure that uh, the younger generation gets educated the right way, that the ideas get spread. It's a, it's a kind of a ideological propaganda, but I do have to say that their new Soviet man thing wasn't among the worst things that they did. Actually, you know, all this, all this unification around sports and stuff—that was that was pretty good, I think. Exactly, and um, you know, the the new Soviet man that Chris is talking about is um, known as the Stakhanovite movement. Stakhanovite. It was named after a coal miner named Stakhanovci. Yes. Yeah. Yes, can yes, you yes. say his real name? Because I am going to butcher it. Alexei Stakhanov, as far as I get. I just know yeah. Stakhanov. Yeah. Right. Uh, the problem is with that guy that he was a total fraud. Exactly. <laughs> that's, and That's the difference. And I, I have a uh, link that we'll throw up in the show notes. Uh, the audio is too bad to play it here on the show. But I encourage you to watch it because you can see in this video, it's a propaganda video made, it sounds like, by a Westerner, um, about the glorious production numbers of these um, union-wide labor competitions that they would have, which were very similar to what we're about to talk about, which is the Spartacod and the GTO. So the new Soviet man, though, what Chris is saying, was a really um, deliberate policy that was put in place by the government uh, to recreate, like, quite literally, um, how you are as a worker, as a citizen, as a contributing member of society. Um, so they put out this uh, miner named Stakhanov, 
um, as an example, and then they would start these competitions to kind of um, <clears throat> motivate uh, workers to um, uh, report very accurate production numbers because those never got inflated. So that takes us, Chris, to the GTO, a.k.a. the Single All-Union Athletic Classification System, which was, as you said, established in 1935. Uh, the party made it legal for unions to establish their own sports teams. Also, factories and plants would have a physical culture organizer known as the Fizzorg, whose responsibility it was to get the workers to pass their GTO test. So you touched on that a little bit already, Chris. So... Um, the GTO is translated as, as you say, get, uh, ready for work and for defense, although the official name was the All-Union Physical Culture Complex. Um, yeah, 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 but, but, but basically, the, 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 the Soviets so liked abbreviations. I just know that everyone called them GDA norms here. Yes, exactly. Uh, because uh, talking about abbreviations, one, one kind of side, side note, the Soviets abbreviated everything in very stupid ways. For example, one of the abbreviations that was was there in in, in kind of the local, like uh, in the coastal towns, was a position which abbreviated to Zamkompomardje, which literally translates to with a with smack smack someone with a wrench to the face. Well, that actually was the position of uh, deputy uh, deputy minister. In deputy minister in the question in the maritime questions, yes, deputy minister in the maritime questions was abbreviated to Zamkompamardje, <laughs> which is which literally means in the face. which means which means literally punching someone with a wrench in the face. <laughs> That's awesome. It's almost like Zam uh, basically Zamkom is uh, abbreviation of Zamestitel Komitee. It's like deputy of the committee. Uh, Pamardje is po is. Off and Morje is Marski Jela, which is maritime things, maritime, uh, maritime questions. But yeah, that that was a real abbreviation. That's they they kind of changed it out for a and, while. And, but yeah, so and see, I, you can see. I, I, I know this about um, like people from Russia and people from Eastern Europe, uh, the Baltic uh, states. Um, you guys are really funny, and you're usually really like politically satirical, like. Um, you kind of have to be, let's be honest, but pointing fun at the, the government and uh, making fun of them behind their back is, is well documented. The dark humor it's a It's a proud tradition. It's a proud tradition. And we, that's another reason, way we're similar in Canada is because we're so small compared to the Americans. We tend to produce like the comedians because we kind of, it's all we got. Uh, to back us up is uh, to make fun of them when their backs turned. So. Oh, I know some of your I know some of your Canadian comedians. Exactly. My wife sometimes have listened to Justin Bieber. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so the GTO uh, were re regular physical tests issued to Soviet citizens aged 10 to 60 to measure general athletic proficiency. Uh, tests would be taken through work or if you were a youth through the commissar. The purpose of the test was to prove excellence in any one particular sport, but rather to display an all-round ability in a number of events and knowledge of hygiene, first aid, and sports theory. And this is from Riordan, um, and it was published in 1980. Uh, the program had five stages, determined by age, and demanded a certain proficiency in running, jumping, throwing, shooting, skiing, and gymnastics. So there you go right there, Chris. Shooting is a main component. And then also skiing, if you pair shooting and skiing together, uh, you got a pretty deadly biathlete right there, right? Yeah, we 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 had we have biathlon still. Biathlon is very popular in these parts. Yeah, I can imagine. Wait a minute, I'll ask I'll ask I'll ask Gunders about this. Uh, just a second here. Sure. Uh, 
So this is an interesting thing. Sigundars is a burly man. He's uh, one of those big guys. Yeah. Uh, and he told me about his university GDA norms when he studied. The thing is, they were all organized in like huge, huge kind of spheres. The thing is, uh, he, he studied in a conservatory. He well, became a musician later on. Musical academy, essentially. And the thing is, you had to pass these norms and these tests, but you didn't do them in your university or your like hometown or whatever. They had to be made like centralized. Oh, right, of course. And and of the trainers, they had to be centralized. The, <laughs> the trainers and the like, the PED guys, they were just there, sent from another town, maybe just sent there at random to pass these norms, do the paperwork, and go away. So I was just told that, hey, him being a big burly man, he couldn't really pass the running thing so well. But as those those things were centralized and happened at various dates, and nobody of the of the trainer guys knew everyone else's faces. Uh, Gundar's here, he basically did the kind of the, the hammer throwing parts and lifting of weights parts for some people, about for five or six other people, and for that other people basically ran the 100 meter dash for him or swam for him and stuff like that. Wow, that's cool. Because it wasn't really checked. No, no, you know? no. They And that's like, just like the general production numbers on various industries, um, they're often inflated and people would get passes going through, right? Yeah, it's like people People just, uh, they found a way, because, you know, if he's not very good at running, but he can, like, lift weights really well or throw a hammer really well, why not help your comrades? Of course, and also, like, why lose um, an interesting musician because he can't run, right? Like, what, are you going to kick him out of, like, the conservatory school, like, the, the music school, just because yeah, the guy can't run fast enough? <laughs> Stupid. Exactly. <laughs> Doesn't make but, any but sense. The, but, but, then, then they, but then it gets then to this ideology, up. though, Chris, of the new Soviet man or woman, because it was a genderless sort of thing. It's like you need to be a good Soviet person because um, women were and girls were expected to participate in this as well. Um, you you are losing out on people because of these sort of arbitrary measures, aren't you? Yeah, but you see, like at one point, too much it wasn't it wasn't as bad as getting kicked out of the university, but you could get in like serious trouble. Right, you could like lose your uh, stipend, or you you could lose if you didn't pass these tests, you could like lose your dorm space. You could be kicked out of dorms, for example, and stuff like that. Oh, that's even, like in some ways that's even worse. Like at least if you're just kicked out of school, you like don't have to worry about being punished repeatedly. Um, so now. When you were at school, uh, Chris, um, what was the, uh, like, did you have to pass a certain grade on these various dimensions of the the GTA or whatever you called it there? Um, oh, no, your equivalent, I, I, Or was I, it just sort of like gym class at that point or PE or whatever? For, we, for, for me, it was a bit different because I went to school in the 90s in the kind of the, in the era where, where stuff was breaking down. Right. So we had some Soviet traditions. Yeah. Well, we we did have to throw grenade, as far as I remember. You did? Yeah. Really? The gr- grenade throw? Was it a was live it grenade, thing? or was it just throwing, like, a rock or no, something? No, just... It wasn't a rock. It was a model of a grenade. Oh. We threw that one. I'd be awesome at that. I love playing baseball. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, hey, front of the class. <laughs> we got a no, grenade thrower. Like, <laughs> we, we, had to, we had to pass some things. We were also... We were also taught. I remember them was like uh, in, in the fifth grade. I remember we were also in our in our PED class. We were we were taught how to march in line. You know, given the drilling about how to march in parades, how to follow orders and stuff like that. A bit of military stuff was was still in there, but it was it was way less than before. Right, and even in the West here, like we have. 
I think a lot more toned down versions of the exact same thing. So when I was in high school, I was in marching band. I learned how to march. I learned how to follow a beat with uh, in lockstep with my colleagues there. Um, we have, uh, and I'll talk about this a little bit more when we get uh, after the musical interlude, but um, we had a very similar program to this GTO or what you're describing at your school. Um, it was called the Canadian Fitness uh, Program. And it, uh, you all got ranked. You had to, like, climb rope and, and like, um, do, like, jumping jacks and, like, just random stuff like that. But it was exactly this model. Um, so, but we'll talk about that after a little musical break. I did want to say, though, that this GTO, and this is just, again, from Riordan, one of the only scholars on the subject. His name is spelled R-I-O-R-D-A-N, and it's from 1980. Um, the GTO had four expressed aims. It was to make regular participation in sports a permanent feature in people's daily lives. And importantly, it was to draw children into sport and to recognize talent at an early age. You mentioned that, Chris, how they would select the very proficient, talented athletes. And uh, we'll find out what happened to those after the music here. Uh, third, the GTO was used for direct military training. You also talked about that, Chris. Um, and at each level, there was a civil defense test. And in three of the age levels, uh, rifle shooting was a feature, especially 16 to 18-year-olds. The fourth reason was uh, it was an attempt to cut down on absenteeism from work uh, through illness and to make workers more adaptable to changing technologies in the workplace. Now, remember, this is in the 1930s, coming out of the political turmoil of the 20s. They're like almost in Russia. They're almost reindustrializing. So they're having all these five-year plans. Uh, so it's rapid industrialization. So you need a fit and able-bodied workforce to match that those demands. And finally, the GTO program attempted to channel youthful zeal and energy, this is a quote, into productive activities. Um, and now also, um, you mentioned a little bit, but there were different designations throughout this program. And if you're like a professional level athlete going to the Olympics and World Championships and international competitions, um, those designations were Master of Sport of the USSR and the International Class. Oh, yeah, yeah, because... Because everything of this was obviously structured. Exactly. This was like, and that's was, that's why I wanted to it was, nail it was, all those. It was kind <laughs> of it was kind of similar to to how university works, you know, with with all the academical degrees and stuff like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Except it also also applied to sports. There were like classes of, of sportsmanship and how awesome of a sportsman you were. And, yeah, kind of weird. And we see with the Stakhanov uh, movement. Um, they would have the similar sort of competitions um, throughout industries as well. So you'd be the best, like, coal miner or the best um, shoe uh, sewer, uh, cobbler, I guess. Um, they would have all these different designations within industries and then also a hierarchical ranking system. And depending on where you fall in the hierarchy, you get small little social considerations like maybe a slightly larger place to live or a little bit more pay um, now when it comes to sport master of sport of the USSR and international class those two designations those were conferred for life and those were through like results on the field um, now there was also a higher award and that was merited master of sports of the USSR and this designation was honorary and separate from the official ranking system so it's interesting even within an official ranking system that's super structured they still had an honorary one that they could put right up at the top just in case they needed to plug it with a crony right <laughs> okay so as you can probably tell chris and i just started nerding out a little bit there 
I kind of knew this was going to happen. I kind of wanted this to happen, but I also think this would be a nice break point. Before we get into the recommendation section, I wanted to say a big thanks to Kristaps Andresons from the Eastern Border Podcast for joining me all the way from sunny Latvia, and to Uncle Gundars for his first-hand experiences. What a nice added bonus, and be sure to stay tuned for part two, because Uncle Gundars is making another appearance. You can find the Eastern Border Podcast anywhere you find podcasts, and be sure to hit rate, review, and share on his show. I happen to think he's doing politically meaningful work over there. And thanks again to Ocean Path for allowing us to play your fiery tunes. You can find Ocean Path on SoundCloud and on Facebook.com slash Ocean Path. This is The Puppet Show, and when we come back, a very snazzy recommendation section awaits.
Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for hanging in. We've not done a recommendation section in a while, so I figured, what the heck? Today, I want to recommend some TV shows all about fashion. Because of my Noggin I do not watch a lot of TV. So when I do, it tends to be with purpose and intentional. Second seemingly unrelated connection, I've never followed fashion trends and have always been a bit of a nonconformist in this way. The result is that I have no sense of style and absolutely no interest in fashion. That is, until my wife, Melly introduced me to Project Runway. I've recommended this before on a past show, but PR, as I like to call it, unlocked my own inner diva and sparked this bizarre and unexpected journey of loving reality shows all about female fashion. So go check out Project Runway. There's so much good in that show. But next, I want to recommend to you RuPaul's Drag Race. Aside from Ruru being my muse in so many ways, or maybe it's because she can pull off a better looking version of Tyra Banks, check it out, it's jarring how similar they look, or because Ru also smiles with his eyes. I have loved Drag Race from season one. Mel and I feel like we discovered this show before everyone else, so it kind of belongs to us, but I will allow you to also share this one widely, as to me, it is the most empowering and celebratory show about queerness on tv and rupaul should win an emmy for this reason there you heard it here first want to know what show makes me cry all the time you guessed it queer eye season two has just been released and it is as amazing as season one is i think my favorite on there is jonathan and i'll let you all figure out why that might be But this show is way more than a fashion makeover reality show. It gets to the heart of why guys like me are so afraid of fashion or just looking and kind of feeling good in general. Aside from shattering so many stereotypes while also embracing them in an honest, endearing way, um, I think Queer Eye is just amazing. So watch out Project Runway and Antiques Roadshow UK. I'm pretty sure Maddie has a new favorite show. So that's it for us today. Thank you all for hitting download and telling your friends to do the same. Thanks to Chris Stapps from the Eastern Border Podcast for being courageous in your journalism and for adding to this episode. And also thanks to the surprise guest Uncle Gundars all the way from Russia and to Ocean Pass for allowing us to play your wicked tunes. Find them in our show notes and on part two of this episode. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD, on Facebook at The SimPod. Email the show with your thoughts, questions, or show ideas at semiintellectual at gmail.com. And if you leave us a review on Apple or Facebook, we'd be happy to read it out on an upcoming episode. Until next time, talk to you all soon, and be strong, Perry Berry. Love you, brother. Hashtag HelloCancerWTF. All to the rhythm of a passion